Hi, Internet. You're listening to episode number seven of Open Paren, a podcast about librarians and code. You can catch the complete show notes, including links to whatever we end up talking about today, at thatandromeda.github.io slash open underscore paren, where you can also suggest guests for upcoming shows and catch up on previous shows. Thanks for listening. Today we are talking to Sumana Hariharashwara, who is kind of hard to introduce because she has been everywhere and done everything. Um, but highlights include a lot of project management uh, in especially open source worlds. Um, she has been at Wikimedia. She has been at Fog Creek Software and Salon. Uh, we were together on the Ada Initiative Board of Directors for a while. Uh, she's keynoted Code for Lib. I will, I'm sorry. I will briefly correct you and say that uh, we were both on the advisory, on the advisory board. board. You were on the board yes. of directors. I was on the advisory board. Thank you very much. Um, we were both on, on other boards board. of directors. Yes. You are on, on like eight boards of directors, right? No, no, I'm just on one. <laughs> Lead out. <clears throat> um, anyway, Sumana has keynoted Code for Lib and Open Source Bridge and Wiki Conference USA. And she's edited a science fiction anthology and won an Open Source Citizen Award and lately basically is one of those incredibly sparkly people that if you ever get to hang out with, you should do that because that would be awesome. So I feel like we could talk for hours and hours and hours and not run out of things to say, but I think I will start with you are most recently of a shiny new software release management consultancy, which is one of those things that I would not have thought of until it existed. And now that it does seems like the most useful thing on the planet. So can you talk about that? What is your yes, shiny new thing, uh, and, and why? Yes, yes, I can, Andromeda. And, and <laughs> first, uh, thank you very much for having me on Open Paren. And uh, thank you also very much for all of the other informal, great conversations <laughs> we've had online and in person that uh, I anticipate will continue uh, beyond <laughs> and after however much time we've allotted for this particular <laughs> podcast. So. For years now, as an open source software contributor and as a participant in and sometimes leader of collaborative projects, I have been in a position where I see work that needs doing and then I step up and do it. And it turns out that one word we have for the kind of work that I step up and do is project management. Sometimes we call it other things. Sometimes is some aspect of it is event management. Sometimes some aspect of it is called writing. Sometimes some aspect of it is called release management, product management, program management, and so on. Most recently, when I was at PyCon North America in Montreal in April of 2015, I attended the sprints having to do with the open source project Mailman, which is a pretty damn popular mailing list application written in Python that you have probably used at some point, you listeners and viewers, even if you don't think of any particular uh, list that you've been on, uh, you've probably been on some mailing list at some point that is uh, run by Mailman. Fun fact, Mailman originated as a fan mail processing application for the Dave Matthews Band. I had no idea. Dave That's Matthews fan, fan clubs. Yes, yes. So the mailman folks have been working on this for a very long time, as evidenced by the fact that the Dave Matthews band is part of its origin story. <laughs> and 2.0 had come out something like more than a decade ago. And I'd been contributing to the project online for a few months. And then we all got together at this sprint in Montreal. And I found myself, instead of coding, stepping up and running the sprint. On, in a project management and release management capacity. And just in 20 minutes of conversation, we were able to cut our blockers list down from about 20 to 10. And then I kept everybody on the same page in terms of what we were supposed to do. I helped solve minor user experience questions. I helped decide whether something was or wasn't, was or wasn't a blocker. I wrote some of the release notes. I did testing. I helped with all those little things that sometimes turn into blockers that keep a project from releasing a new version for months. And then we got 3.0 out, not at the end of that week, but certainly a lot sooner than we would have otherwise. And this was not the first time that I'd done this kind of step, as I mentioned, stepping in and helping run a sprint or helping get a release out the door faster or what have you. 
But this was the first time that I'd really stepped in and done that since I'd left the Wikimedia Foundation in September 2014. And I thought, you know, I've done this several times now. I'm going to see if I can make a business out of this, if I can set up my own shingle and provide these services as a contractor instead of as a volunteer, an employee, and so on. So that's where the impetus came from. And then I had some other obligations and travel and so on to take care of over the next several months. And then this fall, I started up Change Set Consulting LLC. Which has one of the coolest URLs I have ever met, changeset.nyc. So um, I'm pretty happy with it, yeah. Who, who wants to hire you and what do they want to hire you to do? That is a good question. So I've just started up and the one project that's currently in progress, and by in progress I mean the invoice is awaiting payment, <laughs> uh, I, I'm not entirely sure that it's representative of what's going to happen in the future with Change Set because it was the kind of consulting that was a great deal of talking where I spoke with a project leader about what their past history is, where they've gone wrong in the past, and what's going to happen next. I think that in the future, there's going to be a mix of projects. I think that you're going to see some amount of the for-profit world and the world of companies that create proprietary software while using open source, hiring me to help out with uh, upstreaming some of their improvements to upstream open source projects or hiring me to help with the upstream projects that they care about even if they're not contributing code because it can be really annoying when you are trying to make a product and you are waiting for a fix that you care about to arrive in an upstream release and they haven't put out a new release in months or years. So I'll be able to help with that sort of thing. I think that some subset of the organizations that are hiring me will be companies that mostly make proprietary software, but are putting out open source, for instance, because let's say acquire some company in an aqua hire, right, to get the people. But those people will have a little bit more morale if you make sure that the product that they used to work on is not just abandoned. So you open source it. To open source it properly, you got to choose a license. You may have to scrub proprietary data out of the code and out of all of the bugs and to-dos and documentation and other related artifacts. So I am hireable for that sort of thing. And I've had some interest from at least one company on that front. Sometimes you see open source that have crowdfunded. So maybe this is under the aegis of a for-profit or a nonprofit or almost no organization at all or a co-op or something. And they've crowdfunded because they want to achieve some specific goal, either of putting out a 1.0 release or maybe adding some new feature or fixing a slew of bugs. And it can be really helpful to have a project manager, a release manager, a communications manager, someone to take care of most of the things that are not pumping out functions and classes. So I anticipate that I will be helping out with some of those kinds of things. And I think there is going to be some amount of being hired by nonprofits and similar organizations, the you know, universities and the academy to do just classic project management on ongoing open source projects. But those are a few of the ideas. There may be more things. Some of the services that I offer are ones that I think any group might be interested in, such as preparing for a hackathon so that it can actually be useful, preparing to apply for internship programs or other competitive programs or grants or something like that by doing grant writing or improving the developer onboarding process and creating lists of junior jobs and bugs and things like that. One thing that has been suggested to me is that I offer a service of running postmortems and retrospectives after catastrophes and <laughs> other, um, shall we say, suboptimal events in, in a project's release management. And I am considering whether I want to do that. I think I'm open to it. I should also mention that I am open to working with closed source organizations on closed source projects. 
It's just that that's less appealing to me. And I think the specific strengths that I bring ones where I know how to work in the open. I know how to mix and match the right tools to get the job done, including who people's competitors and uh, shall I say, the partners are in the open source space. All those things are things where uh, I bring a specific strength to the table. And there's a zillion people out there who are doing closed source project management and you know, there's specific skills there that are maybe more relevant over there. So I find myself interested in how you got so into open source because so much of your code and your management and your fandom and your volunteer involvement has all been in open source. So why? So uh, there's probably there should, there should be a bit here where I sing, right? I feel as though <laughs> I won't stop uh, you. In, Go ahead. In, in musicals, right? In musicals, uh, I think there's a classic like I want song, or there's sort of like in uh, comic books, right? We have origin stories and so on. Uh, and uh, people who are fans of my and Andromeda's work may be amused. <laughs> by us using the phrase origin stories since she and I have both given speeches to white audiences about uh, our origin stories and the origin stories of people that we might want to get into this whole rigmarole. So the way that I got into open source in sort of a proximate cause way and the reason why I found it so indelibly important to my heart once I found it are in a sense two different questions. Uh, the first one first. In 1998, I arrived as a freshman at UC Berkeley and I fell in with hippies. <laughs> and one of those hippies was a gentleman named Seth Schoen, who nowadays works at the Electronic Frontier Foundation defending our freedom. And back then was a double major in classics and computer science who helped me understand that it just made sense for everyone to be empowered to be able to look at and modify and change changes to software that they use, software that runs our lives. A reason why that made so much sense to me is because I grew up in a household where my parents were community managers, in a sense, although we didn't use that term at the time. My parents, immigrants from India, ran a magazine for speakers of their language who were also immigrants from India, the diaspora in the United States. I had been interested in politics for some time. And when I was in high school, I also volunteered on a TV show, a local cable access TV show again, run by a hippie, one of the founders of the Peace and Justice Network of San Joaquin County. And standing behind the camera and then in the control room for what was it, every Wednesday night for years, I heard and overheard a tremendous amount about social justice and about how it's super important to empower us, the people, with the, the tools to make our own lives the way that we wish on a political level, on a cultural level, on an economic level. So when I ran into Seth at Berkeley, when I heard him speak the words of the GPL, he literally would, <laughs> at least one day I remember him taking a copy of the new public license and reading it aloud on Sproul Plaza at Berkeley. Uh, it, it made sense. So I installed Linux on my, what, 386 or whatever it was <laughs> that I brought with me. Uh, to Berkeley, and it was a pretty solid continuing journey from there. And in 2006, so starting in 98, I started using open source and hanging out with the open source crowd and keeping up with open source culture, news, and politics. I did not primarily identify as a coder. I could write command line scripts, and I had some facility with programming, but that wasn't my heart, and that wasn't where I was as a primary identity and activity. In 2006, I ran across the Participatory Culture Foundation's Miro video podcast catcher project. It was written in Python. I was interested in Python as a language to potentially learn, and they had incredibly clear steps for how to start testing this project and contributing as a tester. 
And so that was the first project that I made that kind of contribution to, not just being a user, but actually helping make it better. So from 2006 till now, I've basically continuously been contributing to open source projects in some way. Let's hear it for good documentation, seriously. Oh my goodness, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, Participatory Culture Foundation, props, many props. Yeah. So I, I'm curious also about the, the journey of learning to become more of a coder, both because like, that's such a fraught thing, right? The oh, identity yeah. as a coder, like mm -hmm. it's so hard to be willing to claim that. Um, but also because I know that you went to um, formerly the hacker school, now the Recurse Center and have yeah. tons of opinions on learning to code as an adult, which many people listening are gonna be really interested in because they're either interested in learning or interested in you know getting better from where they're at yep yep i i i can understand that so i will refer people a little bit to some of my writings on this topic to speak more in depth so for instance on the geek feminism blog i've written some i believe a piece called body image uh, uh, the my journey of learning and how I'm learning to love it or something like that and uh, Google gossip and gamification are too and I'll make sure those links are in the show notes. Thank you. So will I. When I was a child, the first thing that I remember coding was I worked with my father who was a Hindu priest on a GW basic program that helped cast astrological charts because cool. with that level of astrology, the question is not just what month were you born in? You need to know the exact specific date and time that someone was born and the latitude and longitude of where they were born because that affects, that affects what the time. stars. Yeah. Yes. That affects what stars were present at yeah. uh, the moment of birth. So you're dealing so, with time zone localization problems from like day one. <laughs> That's how I feel about it too. I have some of my own that I'm dealing with and they're like that. <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, for those listening, I just grabbed my head in sort of a, almost a double face palm, only I wear spectacles and therefore I don't want to, you know, gunk up my glasses. So it's really more of like a head massage where my thumbs are at my cheekbones and then, yeah, my, the rest of my fingers sort of join uh, in my scalp. So in case you want to understand how to face palm in a way that retains the clarity of your glasses, that's uh, my tip to you. So, Yes, time zones. Oh my goodness gracious. Uh, <laughs> if if I believed in some kind of trial by fire for young programmers, I would say that you should have to grow up in a household where from a very young age, you have to deal with time zones. And Unicode, presumably. And you have to have uh, parental units or other people you care about care a lot about reading and writing in a non-Latin script such as Kannada. Kannada is the language from Karnataka that my parents uh, natively care about. Now, I have no idea, come to think of it, whether GW Basic circa, you know, 1990 <laughs> had any facility for dealing with Kannada. I am going to guess no, but perhaps one of our listeners and readers and viewers can <laughs> correct us on that particular topic. So I did a little bit of basic stuff I mean, both in the sense that it was pretty primitive and also GWBASIC, the programming language. And because I was of a pain in the ass, pedantic, analytical turn of mind, my parents naturally thought that I might become an engineer <laughs> or a lawyer, one of those. Uh, and uh, as it is, I ended up in open source software, right? Where all of us have to care about licenses. So right. I almost. Yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of both of those in there. In any case, I did not like the feeling of constraint that I got from how my parents, who wanted only the best for me and loved me and wanted me to be happy and healthy and well, wanted me to become 
a scientist or a doctor or an engineer or something like that, something with a good, stable, steady income and something where, as I now recognize, there was a bit of a promise of meritocracy to them, right? That as long as you can do the job, as long as you can make the equations come out right, there's less of an incentive for any racist or sexist to care about whether you look like them, or at least that I think had been at least somewhat their experience, right? Partly due to, you know, immigration quotas being the way they were in the 1970s and 80s in the US and you know, all these historical contingencies. It's interesting to try to imagine, right, a different history of the United States where we really, really valued literature and music to the point where people just assumed that if you want to be an immigrant, you want to make it in America, you should be a, a writer or a guitarist or something like that. And kids were always being uh, st uh, stimulated and, and pressured that way. But in any case, so I, although coding was fine, and although I certainly was a power user of whatever computer was put in front of me, I didn't like being pushed that way. And when I got to college and I took an introductory CS class, I didn't do so hot. It was the only C uh, I ever got in my whole college career. I got B's and A's, mostly A's and everything else. And I recognize now, looking back, and I speak about this a little bit more in Google Gossip and Gamification, how that particular class and its andragogical and pedagogical style did not work for me as I was at 16. There was very little opportunity to look up the error messages that I was getting because in the fall of 1998, we didn't have Google and we didn't have the web that we have now. Uh, I was one of the very few girls or women that I saw around I didn't have as much to teach anybody. I really appreciate being in an environment where I can teach people and they can teach me and it's a little bit more of an egalitarian relationship. And the stuff that I knew, the guys I was hanging out with didn't necessarily want to know. And I, in you know, a group of 300 people where a harried TA, a harried uh, teach, teaching assistant was grading these assignments, I didn't necessarily get the kinds of feedback and support that would have been helpful to me. I knew that there were bugs in my programs, but I didn't understand that I had to reason through and find, you know, the mental model of why I was making these mistakes and the teaching assistant didn't necessarily help. There's also, I think that for certain kinds of overachievers like me who were trained from a young age, oh, you got an A minus, why didn't you get an A plus? mistakes and failures were seen as something to avoid and not something to learn from. I shouldn't use the passive voice here. I should say that I believe a system taught me these things and I retained these lessons and did not fight against them as I wish that I had. So when I ran into a bug, instead of seeing debugging as a hero's journey, you know, where the deeper your sorrow, the greater your triumph or something like that, instead, I saw bugs as demoralizing reminders that I wasn't cut out for this or that I wasn't good at this or something like that. And of course, this kind of impression was reinforced by seeing people around me who seemed to be getting things completely gracefully and quickly, people who could knock out their entire month's homework in an evening, and by that sort of as Carol Dweck has talked about, the educational psychologist, the fixed model versus the growth model, right? The fixed model being the one that I had in my head of, oh, there's things I'm good at, things I'm not good at. And then the growth model saying, well, if you make an effort and you try different approaches, you will improve. I see that. Is that your child? Yeah, we appear to have a guest appearance from my eight-year-old. Um, hey, we're talking to the whole internet about learning how to program. You have anything you want to say on that topic? Oh, I was just going to say hi. All right. Well, hello. Well, then we'll listen to someone to talk about learning how to program. <laughs> um, so then... Uh, okay. So when, um, you know, I, I gave up on the idea, uh, very happily, I gave up on the idea of majoring in computer science and 
I continued to be a Linux user and a power user of whatever computer was in front of me. And I made a website as part of a part-time job. And I helped staff the Open Computing Facility, which was a student-run Unix computer lab. And I ended up after college, after a stint in a bookstore working customer support, which turned into learning some MySQL and learning maybe the tiniest bit of various other tech things at salon.com. But I sort of was in denial, maybe, or I was just exploring different things, right, that wouldn't involve a career in the tech industry. And then years uh, later, like, years well, later. I should, you... I should mention that throughout this, I did partly pay my bills by doing summer internships in the tech industry, doing tech, tech writing. Mm -hmm. But of course, there was a part of me, right, that fallaciously thought, oh, well, that's not really a tech job because I hadn't yet overcome that particular fallacy. <laughs> so uh, when you eventually read Unlocking the Clubhouse, did you also realize, oh my God, I'm a walking cliche? <laughs> FYI, I may never have read Unlocking the Clubhouse. <gasps> I know, I know, I'm gonna take away my membership card to whatever the, club, um, the clubhouse, in fact, the new clubhouse that uh, we're unlocking or something. I, I do know that I'm a walking cliche. I should write, I should mention, by the way, so like I said, in, in, you know, years later in 2006, I started contributing to open source. I thought, oh, by contributing to Moreau, what I'll do is I'll test things and then I'll find bugs and then I will start fixing them and I'll learn how to program from that. And that didn't work out that way because the pro we sometimes treat testing as a gateway to code contribution. And for some people it is, but it wasn't for me. Similarly, I tried some autodidact type methods of reading textbooks that were available for free. And that didn't work for me either. Part of what eventually worked for me was going to an open hatch event in Boston, the intro Python workshop for their friends, seeing Jessica McKellar do a class that was extremely exercise-based in person where you could ask for help if you needed it. And where I remember her, she made a mistake on stage and then she showed how to gracefully recover from that, how to read a stack trace and so on. That helped demystify some things. I found some gamif gamified type exercises. And eventually I found out about Hacker School, which is now called the Rehearse Center. And that, that was a place where I improved my programming skill a lot. While this whole time also working in technical jobs as a project manager, as a community manager, and so on, and learning on the job in those places as well, learning skills like Git and learning how APIs work, uh, various other things. So I feel as though learning technical skills, learning engineering type skills for me has not been a ladder. It's more been there's nodes in an interconnected graph. And it's like history. Learning history is like that for me as well. It's not that there's one timeline. It's that there's lots of different concepts and names and whatnot that interact with each other. And if you learn anything, then it improves your ability to learn and make sense of everything else. And so I went and spent years working in and hanging out in the tech industry and the tech community. And I think that ended up in some ways helping me when I came back to the idea of improving my programming skills and learning how to write applications in a scripting language. On the other hand, there is an innocent risk love, a love, love of risk uh, in a kind of youth and inexperience. Someone, someone who doesn't know all the edge cases that can go wrong can sometimes sally forth more effectively in ways that would feel overwhelming if you knew all the things that could go wrong in what you're making. And so I think that spending so long in the tech industry and getting to a level of knowing on a professional level when you're writing enterprise software, how many things have to be right in order for what you're making to be robust and mm -hmm. accessible to people with disabilities and internationalized and 
so many other attributes. If you know all those things, it can be hard to play. Mm -hmm. It can be hard to say, I'm going to make a little toy now and it's not going to be good enough on so many axes for the people that I would say work with every day. And that's one reason why I left Wikimedia is I didn't want to be in a situation where anything that I made on the job, I would feel a need for it to be good enough to go into production and serve 8 billion people. Wikipedia is a super important website. And instead I wanted to be able to work on things with a somewhat lower profile and with a somewhat smaller audience. One of the things that's really striking to me listening to the, the things you've mentioned is how many of the things you've talked about learning are things that are totally critical for making software in the real world and absolutely not part of most curricula, you know, like Git, right? Like the whole tool chain, like, uh, I don't think you mentioned, you know, IDEs or, or syntax highlighting or anything like that. Um, but there's that and there's, yeah, like your, your bug management system and internationalization and all of these things that like, yeah. And debugging. Debugging is the big one, right? Like I find myself when I'm teaching people, I really have to get into debugging, but I don't think I was ever taught debugging in a structured way. And so it's hard for me to communicate. How do you do this? Right? How, how do you explain it to someone who doesn't know how to do it yet? Um, because yeah. yeah, those turn out to be like the most important things for actually getting stuff done. And yet they so rarely show up in any of the curriculum resources or classes. Yeah. Um, so what we're talking about, and of course you know this, is partially a division of specializations between computer science and software engineering. Right. My take is I think that... There are a number of sub activities and specializations that are extremely helpful in getting a piece of software to the point where people can use it and it makes their lives better. And one of them is computer science. One of them is what I would call the general craft of software engineering. I think that CS might be a subset, mostly, of software engineering, except for the bit of CS that I would say is extremely applied math, where some of, some of CS, you know, it's that more like that R&D arm of <laughs> software engineering. And it's extremely important that we do that, right? That's where we get the blockchain. Cryptography. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's where we get yeah. the blockchain. That's where we get cryptography. That's where we get machine learning, you know, all these kinds of things. And that's where we get certain aspects of distributed and pro, uh, you know, performance and so on. But I think also under the umbrella of software engineering are specialties like user experience and human-computer interaction stuff. Again, it has sort of an R&D arm, and then there's the bit of it that's ready to be used right now. There's release management, which I think is less well-known as a specialty, and we don't have a canon yet. I am working right now on an essay that provides a framework for, okay, here's at least some ways to self-assess where your organization is <laughs> in terms of release management. Is it inadequate? Is it minimal? Is it solid or is it super robust? And I think that kind of vocabulary is really important with that kind of a specialization. And I think there's a bunch of other stuff as well. I think some aspects of technical writing also basically fall under the software engineering heading testing and QA and the place that shades into DevOps and the place also that it shades into things like continuous integration, which some people would put sort of under the DevOps heading. All these kinds of things, I think, if we're going to have a little bit more certainty in how we assess ourselves and each other as people and as organizations in the tech industry, it can be nice to define your terms and it can be nice to make sure that everyone's at least on the same page regarding what you have or what you don't have. So mm -hmm. I think that 
it's a promising thing that we see some amount of conversation and in some cases formal certifications and courses happening around things like software engineering, things like system administration, things like project management, things like release engineering, not because I'm about to say, oh, okay, I only want to hire people who have these certifications, but because the existence of syllabi and certifications is often a part of and a symbol of some coherence in the conversation. Well, and it's also striking to me, like, when you talked about learning those skills, you talked about learning them osmotically from a community at Wikimedia. And when I learned those skills, I've also, <clears throat> you know, like, learned them osmotically from coworkers. And, you know, that, that seems to be the best way that we have to teach tool chain and craft is membership in, in some sort of professional community. And that's so profoundly exclusionary. Having, having something codified, uh -huh. you know, has its limitations, but maybe the only way in for people who don't have the fortune to already be, you know, working at Wikimedia or startups or what have you. So I should, I should specify that some of the skills around toolchain stuff that I learned, I learned at Wikimedia and some I learned at previous organizations as well, like as part of certain free software communities or at uh, Collabora, which is a place that I worked previously where I got involved in GNOME. And I'm wondering whether I agree with the suggestion that you made that right now the best way that we have to learn these tool chains is as part of the community of practice of a place where you work. I think that is for people who know what I would call software engineering tool chains. And let's say that includes things like version control and bug trackers and sort of the social infrastructure of making software happen, I think you're probably right that that's where most people learn it. By the way, one definition I sometimes use is that a manager is a sysadmin of social infrastructure, where <laughs> a sysadmin manages digital infrastructure. So uh, anyway. Um, it's a good question. I think that the boot camps that we're seeing, for all of their failures, for all of the criticisms that I would have of especially the for-profit dev boot camp industry, I wouldn't be surprised if a place that they are helpful is in teaching tool chains. But I'm not sure. I haven't done any kind of assessment or survey about it. I think that's one place definitely where software carpentry is particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, so Andromeda and I are both uh, probably, I would say at least fans of and followers of the well, I've taught software one carpentry. of their workshops. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're more of a participant yeah. than I am, certainly. Um, the software carpentry, data carpentry, library carpentry set of communities which aim to provide platforms and workshops and resources to improve a lot of programming and power user type skills in these communities of people who are working with data every single day and need better ways to process and work with them. I thought for a moment yeah. you were looking at the whiteboard as though you're about to sketch something out. No, no, I keep accidentally uh, hitting my computer and sliding things, uh, sliding things over. Um, no so actually, I, I really wanted to ask you about digital archives, but I have discovered the one time I don't plug in my laptop before doing a podcast, uh, I, I pay for it. <laughs> so this is going to wrap in a few minutes, whether I want it to or not. I have an idea. This is a radical idea. If you want, I can monologue about something else that I care about at the computer for you know 90 to 120 seconds while you go get your power cord. That sounds fantastic. How about this is like your Hamilton interlude? <laughs> okay, all right. Because you don't want to hear about Hamilton or because you you're okay? Oh, I'm going to catch it later, but you okay. know, <laughs> I'm sure there are people who will care in the audience. All right. So let's, okay, let's sure, sure. Go for, it. Go for it. <laughs> all right.
So I find this extraordinarily amusing, by the way, that I'm part of this interview show and now I'm going to have a moment to speak without the interviewer being able to immediately hear what I say. Instead, it's me speaking directly to you, the viewer and listener. Uh, first off, thanks again. I appreciate that you're watching and listening to this. And if you're enjoying anything that we're saying, please feel free to give us feedback and uh, to reach out to me and Andromeda and let us know especially what. So Hamilton is a musical that premiered this year in New York City, and it's fantastic. I would love to be able to describe it to you, but every time that I describe it, when I say, well, it's a musical that has a lot of hip hop in it and is based on the life of founding father Alexander Hamilton, a lot of people respond the same way that this one guy in my meditation group did, where he says, really? And I said, it's better than it sounds. And he says, well, it'd have to be. And I have now gotten to see Hamilton once, and I've been listening to the cast album a lot. I really appreciate how it works with history. I appreciate how metatextual and self-critical it is about how history, as Aaron Burr's character sings, in every picture it paints, it also obliterates. And it's got super great rhymes and lyrics. It has very, very clever wordplay. And it has an interesting mix of both sophistication and wonderful Baroque stylings and big heartstring pulling moments that will make lots of people sob. I feel like a good 20% of the tears shed on the New York City subway in the past five months have been people listening to the second half of Hamilton and just like crying on, on the subway. So, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> okay, I'm going to assume it is plugged in, and I'm going to assume the last like minute or two are totally awesome, and I'm going to listen later. Um, I have heard only bits and pieces. Like I missed the week where Hamilton was free. I didn't oh, realize okay. it was free until after it wasn't anymore. So that's very sad. Mm -hmm. But I envy you for having acquired a ticket because I hear that is impossible. Anyway, what happened was that I won one of the ten dollar front seat lottery things, and I may have used up my luck for like a decade. You know, because <laughs> that was great. I will recommend to anybody who hasn't had a chance to, uh, didn't have a chance to listen when NPR first listened, had it streaming for free, and who perhaps doesn't want to pony up for the cast album, there is a song available for free online that Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator, performed in 2009 at the White House. And it's the first song in the musical, almost exactly the same. and. I think that it's a pretty good taste of, of the whole thing. Spectacular. That All right, now I want to ask you, the, the one thing I wanted to make sure that I asked you at some point because of, of who listens to this thing, which is I know you've been giving yourself basically a crash course in digital archiving lately. And I am bit. sure you have super awesome things to say about digital archiving. So uh, what have you found? Uh, interesting theories or problems in that sphere, I guess. Okay, that's a, that's a very, uh, it's a question that humbles me, right? Because I know, I know in my bones that you can spend a whole lifetime working and studying in digital archives and have a tremendous amount of expertise. And there are people who I wish I was for the purposes of the project that I'm working on. And when you're doing something as a little hobby, as a toy, it's okay to be playing around. It's okay not to know and to learn as you go. But when you're trying to do something to honor someone else's memory, you don't want to screw it up, you know? So the reason why I have been working at all on a digital archiving project is you remember how I mentioned that when I was a teenager, I worked on that TV show. Mm -hmm. I worked every Wednesday. So my mentor, John Moriarty, the guy who co-founded the Peace and Justice Network of San Joaquin County, the guy who hired me as a volunteer and promoted me and was the first adult ever really to give me a big sense of responsibility, who took me to United Nations Association meetings and 
uh, made friends. He and his wife made friends with my mom and dad and was uh, just a huge influence on me and on trying to live my values. He died a few years ago after uh, an illness that took some time. And he named me one of his literary executors. And I, I'm the one who suggested this idea to him. So it's kind of my fault. <laughs> I was visiting him in the hospital and he said, you know, I've, I've lived a pretty full life. I'm not sad about going, but I just made so much stuff and I don't want it all to just be thrown away because he had written books. He had so many essays and columns that he'd written for the newspaper that he'd co-founded. And he'd of course made all these videos, not just the weekly talk show, but also he'd served as a community videographer for Northern California community events, the kind of stuff that would never get shown on the big corporate media, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I said like a fool, well, John, you know, maybe what you want is a literary executor. He said, I don't know about that idea. Tell me more about that. And I said, well, I'm no expert, but I think that a literary executor is someone who goes through your papers and your videos and stuff like that after you die and publishes stuff and curates it and makes it accessible to people. He said, huh, huh, huh. And then the next time I saw him, he said that he would like to name me and another friend of his as a team to be his literary executors. And inwardly I said, ah, oh, crap. And then the first thing I said, <laughs> I think I said, let me think about it, but probably yes. And then I said, yes. I mean, I, I owe this guy a lot of myself. So that happened a, a few years ago. And then I had a lot of other things on my plate as did John's widow and as did the other woman on the executive team. And then this summer we were able to get together and sort through a bunch of his papers, find a lot to put into a stack to digitize, start talking with his kids about what's going to go on Moriarty.com. And the really big thing was, okay, we had all these VHS tapes. Oh, what boy. condition we what condition were they in? What could we do with them? Would they have to be preserved? Someone would have to actually go over them with special equipment and attention, which would cost, you know, at least 20 bucks, maybe more than a hundred bucks a tape. Or could we just slam them into a VH, a VCR that was attached to a USB port somewhere <laughs> and digitized? And it turns out, this is a great stroke of luck. They were actually not that bad. They were in reasonable shape. And the internet archive was willing to digitize all of them for free. Whoa. Because, because right, they were uh, under copyright, like John had made them. So we, his estate, were able to say, go ahead. I had checked with John before he died and I said, is it okay for all the stuff you made for me to release it under an open license so that people can watch it for free on the internet? I said, sure, that's, that's a good idea. Um, and I had uh, the very great luck to have some conversations with a digital humanities expert and web developer named Ashley Bluer, who- Oh yeah, she has yeah. the great Taylor Swift slides. I'm sorry, could you say that again? She has the great Taylor Swift slides that explain like checksums. That's wonderful, I think I was unaware. <laughs> this is one of the many great things about Ashley Bluer then. and. <laughs> So she was kind enough to give me some free advice, which I will always, always be grateful for about what to look into around the, um, you know, inventorying things and uh, some contacts at various places and what things might cost. And I contacted the Internet Archive and uh, they were able to try one out just as a, as a test and it came out just fine and they were willing to take all of them. So we boxed all of them up and got them to the Internet Archive. And now, over time, as volunteers have time, they're uh, digitizing all these old tapes. And it's a, it's a pretty great experience. I also got some good news that a few of these tapes that have art importance are going to be preserved. I'm not sure how much I can say about that just yet. So I'll be able to say more once, you know, the award stuff is public. But it's really great to know that at least some of them 
they're not just going to be accessible to the world on the internet, thank you to the Internet Archive, but some of them will be preserved at a much higher quality, which will be great for future historians of Northern California community work. So, so you've asked about some things that, that I've learned, some lessons learned. One, I would really appreciate if everybody was as organized as John was about keeping related pieces of paper mostly together in file folders. That would be great. Another thing is that if you have VHS tapes or other media related to community activism, things where you have the copyright or they're under an open license or they're public domain or something like that. Uh, well, sorry, public domain is an open license, but um, if they're under public domain or even a more restrictive open license, consider contacting the Internet Archive to see if they will digitize those things and make them accessible to the whole world for free. Because I think, you know, in, in some cases they can. Another thing to know is that the California Audiovisual Preservation Project has a guide that they have made publicly available. And I gave you a link in Dramatis uh, mm -hmm. to a blog post that I wrote about all that stuff. They have a pamphlet that's available in PDF form to help you see what kinds of media you have based on its physical characteristics, what to watch out for, how to store it, and what its lifetime is going to be before it degrades. So that's a useful thing to know as well. I am still on the lookout for a vouched for company or service that will take hundreds or thousands of eight and a half by 11 type sheets of letter paper and scan them at a quality where it is potentially possible for things that are typed on a typewriter to have OCR, optical character recognition so, uh, software run on them because that bit of the work is still yet to do. So I think one thing that I have learned is that that is a project that we really need to not underestimate when it comes to engaging with the past. In a sense, it's easier on some level to be dealing with the analog media of like a VHS tape. And I think I'm still sort of pondering how, how and why that is. So anyone listening who knows about excellent scanning services needs to tell Sumina, <laughs> whose concept uh, social information will be in, in the show notes. Um, I think even though I would love to talk to you for many hours more, uh, yeah. I need to respect your time and wrap and up. I need to respect Thank yours. You I, I so hear there's much. a child in your household who might There's a child in them. my household. Yeah, I should probably like feed her because it's been like an hour since she's eaten. She's probably starving. Um, <laughs> But thank you so much for hanging out with me and the internet this afternoon. It was super fun, as always. I am I am very grateful, Andromeda. <laughs> I, I regret that I feel like I didn't get to ask you enough questions. Ah. But perhaps I need to start a reverse podcast where I interview people who just have interviewed me. And then, yeah. That'd be yeah. awesome. You can do that thing. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, so... Is this the end of an open paren? Does that mean that now is the close paren? Oh, I don't I don't actually close parens. I leave them hanging so that listeners can run off and start things. Oh, okay, that sounds great. All right, well, enjoy <laughs> enjoy the space that you're in, listeners. And on that note, I think this is where we stop. <laughs>